The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. By the late 1920s, there were at least nine or ten communists working in Pavlov's lab. And Pavlov would argue with them about their politics, but he judged everybody as a scientific worker based on their scientific work. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell. I'm here with Daniel P. Totis, Professor of History of Medicine at the Johns Hopkins University. Daniel specializes in the history of science and medicine in Russia and is especially interested in the relationship of scientific thought to the broader context in which it's generated. He's addressed these subjects in Darwin Without Malthus, The Struggle for Existence in Russian Evolutionary Thought, and in Pavlov's Physiology Factory, Experiment, Interpretation, Laboratory Enterprise. He's here today to talk about his new book, Ivan Pavlov, A Russian Life in Science. Good to have you here, Daniel. So I went into this book thinking that I only knew one fact about Pavlov, uh, that that he was able to train dogs to salivate at the sound of a bell. That's it. Um, And at the very first sentence of your book begins, contrary to legend, Pavlov never trained a dog to salivate to the sound of a bell. And so with that, I I knew effectively nothing about him. Right. (laughs) I worried about losing my readers there, by the way. So why did you start the book there? Well, I started the book because that way because somebody advised me to begin with what most readers knew or thought they knew. So um, I decided to just take it head on and um, tell them that the one thing that they knew about Pavlov wasn't true and hope that I could hold on to them long enough to hook them in the introduction. Success, sir. Definitely. Now, what drew you to Pavlov as a subject? Okay. Um, back up a moment. Uh, as, as you said in the introduction, I'm basically interested in two things. I'm interested in science as a human product, the way scientific thought um, uh is is related to the broader social and cultural context. Why two different scientists in two different places at two different times will look at presumably the same reality and look at it, approach it very different, draw their ask different questions about it, draw very different conclusions about it. And uh, I'm particularly interested in the history of science in Russia. So I wrote my first book. Um, about um, Russian evolutionism, the Russian response to Darwin, tried to show in that first book how particular Russian conditions led them to give a particular spin to their evolutionary thinking. And when I finished that, I thought, okay, now I want to do an experimentalist because experimental science is different from natural history. Um, There's a lot more of the ethos, especially around Pavlov, that it's just about the facts, just about generating hard data. And so I said, okay, let me look into Pavlov. And I was surprised when, when I started looking at the literature that there was really nothing decent on him, not on his science not on his life. And I was really surprised about that, but I I, I found out as my research went on why that was the case. And then the last thing is um, my 
scholarship, although I'm interested in, in these broader issues, has always tended to have a biographical bent. And I would say now that I think biography is actually a, a pretty good way to get at this question of why people think what they think, because you can follow an individual's life path. You can follow them through all the different contexts that influence them. You can get into their science and you can try to sensitively look at that relationship. So um, here I had this great, famous Nobel Prize winning scientist and um, there was nothing good about him, at least nothing that answered the questions I had about him. And it was um, Gorbachev time in Russia. So in that way, I was was very lucky. Anybody who works on history for a while, I think, comes to appreciate the dialectic between um, structure and contingency. And so I just gave you the structure in terms of my own interest. The contingency was that I had finished that first book and was looking at a new um, project just when Gorbachev was in power and was opening up the archives. And so I was able to get a number of generous grants to go to Russia for a year in 1990, 1991. And the archives were open. So it was uh, very, very fortunate. Maybe before we get down to the details about his life, who was Ivan Pavlov broadly? Okay. Um, well, first of all, I should say he was a fascinating, passionate, deeply Russian man, a real truth seeker, I would say. And um, one of the greatest representatives of a certain brand of experimental physiology um, in his um, in his time. Um, you want me to give you a brief overview of his life to give you a sense? Okay, he's it's an epic of Russian history. Look, he's born in 1849 in a provincial city, Riazan, before the serfs are emancipated. And he grows up um, in imperial Russia. He lives through um, several lost wars, um, two revolutions, the Bolshevik seizure of power in 1917, and he dies at age 86 in Stalin's Russia. So he's born before the serfs are emancipated, and he dies amid rapid industrialization, um, collectivization, and the Stalinist terror. So, so it's almost 100 years of Russian history. Um, so that's in terms of the scope of his life. Um, who is he? As, who was he as a person? He he was complicated and contradictory, like like we all are. He was deeply passionate, deeply principled. He had an incredible temper. He was the kind of authoritarian figure that I think a lot of us would have found difficult to have as a parent or a spouse or a boss. Um, um, but he was he was driven by well, different things at different levels. On on one level, um, um, a theme that I developed into the book, he was driven by a desire for certainty, certainty in life. And this is this is a man who grew up in a religious family. He was supposed to be the fifth generation of clergy in his family. He got his education 
in the seminary. The only formal course he ever took about psychology was in the seminary. And when he was a teenager, in the wake of the emancipation of the serfs, Russian society was changing um, very quickly. And um, many people believed that the key to the new Russia was modernization and science. And so Pavlov embraced science as his new secular faith. And I, I think that for the rest of his life, after he threw off the religious verities that he had been brought up with, um, one of the things he was trying to do both in science and outside of science was um, outside of the laboratory was um, establish new sources of certainty. So, for instance, he was going to replace the um, faith in a, in a good and all-knowing God with scientific laws. And he was going to replace um, religiously-based morality with, first of all, a very strict, undeviating schedule. I mean, when he was an adult, he you, you could set your clock by what he was doing every day. Um, but also by a very firm sense of um, secular morality. So that's one thing that he was about, was, was the search for certainty. And in fact, one of the most exciting for me um, finds in the archives was I found the two manuscripts he was working on when he died. Um, one of them, which I found amazing for a Nobel Prize winning scientist at age 86, um, was him revising some of his basic views about conditional reflexes in the psyche. But the other was this essay that he was writing to Molotov, um, Stalin's right-hand man. And Pavlov at this time was an atheist, but his views toward about religion had evolved over time. And he always identified deeply as a son of the clergy. And it was an essay in which he discussed the relationship between religion and science and Christianity and communism. And um, at one crucial part in the manuscript, he asks this rhetorical question. He says, what is the worst thing in life? And somebody's answer to that question, I think, is interesting. You and I would give, you know, different kinds of answers. His answer, it was a rhetorical question for him because the answer was obvious, was um, slew China state, accidents, um, lack of certainty. And so his, his life was about that search for certainty on that level. Um, and of course, he was also, he was a great scientist. He was um, a patriot um, in his particular sense. Um, he was a world spokesman for science and became an icon for this dream that people had that science would, as he firmly believed, make us more humane, improve our societies, and as he put it, would understand our consciousness and its torments. This is Science for the People, and I'm talking to Daniel Totis, author of Ivan Pavlov, A Russian Life in Science. All right. Well, let's let's talk a little bit uh, about some of his lesser known work, I guess, mm -hmm. because he did win a Nobel Prize for for studying digestion, which that's right. No one seems to know. So, no, how, did he, right. how did he become interested in that? There are a few reasons. First of all, one of his favorite books when he was a teenager was uh, G. H. Louis' um, Physiology of the Common Life. 
And um, Lewis was a British popularizer of science, and he had this plate in his book that Pavlov still remembered very um, uh, sharply at the end of his life that showed the digestive system. And Pavlov claimed later that he looked at it and, and he said, well, here, how does such a complicated machine work? So he was interested in the digestive system as um, uh, an important vital mechanism in animals that he wanted to show worked according to mechanistic principles. His um, advisor in college, Ilya Tsion, also worked on digestion, so he taught Pavlov how to approach the digestive system. But what to me is especially interesting about it in terms of this theme of our mutual interest, the relationship of science to context, is that Pavlov studied the digestive system based on a metaphor, um, that the digestive system was a complex chemical factory. Well, where did he come up with that metaphor from? Because Russian society was going through its industrial revolution, especially in St. Petersburg. There were factories everywhere. So Pavlov wanted to show that this very complicated, vital process, something that everybody would um, agree was related to the special problems, uh, qualities of life could be explained on mechanistic principles and that basically the digestive system, it worked as a precise chemical factory in the sense that if the organism, and he was experimenting on dogs, eats a certain quality, quantity of a certain food, say meat, that the nervous system and the digestive system will work in such a way that to stimulate the glands to provide precisely the amount and quality of secretion needed to um, optimally digest the meat. And that would differ if you fed the dog milk or bread. So he thought he had this perfect example of the regular mechanical work of a vital process. Um, and that's what he won the Nobel Prize for. But, but you're burying the lead, sir. How did he, yes. how did he study that? Yes. How did he study it? Yeah. Because um, it's, it's fascinating yeah. and also intensely yes. disturbing. Okay. Um, here's the thing. If you want to know how, say, the gastric glands work, um, people before Pavlov would like feed a rabbit or a dog a carrot and wait a certain amount of time and dissect the animal and see, you know, what there was in, in left in the stomach. And they would do it over different periods of time. But for Pavlov, that wasn't precise enough. So his style of physiology, the so-called chronic experiment, was he wanted to work on what he called normal, healthy animals. So he would perform an operation. This is what you want me to talk this about. This is what I want. <laughs> right. He would perform an operation on the dog that would give him access to these inner glands. And then in, he would care for the dog. It would, he had a surgical clinic, just like one in the hospital. And only after the dog recovered, and according to Pavlov, was normal and happy, would experiments begin. So here's... Here, I'll give you two, two great examples. First of all, there was a big dispute at the time over when a dog swallows food, 
um, the the leading sort of mechanical theory of digestion was that it was the friction of the food on the way down that stimulated the glands into action. But Pavlov didn't think that was true. He thought that the dog's psyche played a role. So how do you prove that? He devised this diabolical operation that combined an esophagotomy and a gastric fistula. Okay, the gastric fistula, basically you implant a glass tube that runs from the um, stomach out to the outside of the body surface so that if the stomach is secreting gastric fluid, it'll come dripping out of the fistula. And if you want, you can even measure drops per moment and you can do a chemical analysis. The second thing he did was the esophagotomy on this same dog, which is basically separating the gullet, the digestive tract. Um, so so um, you make an incision in the throat and you have another little fistula-like mechanism there. So you make the dog very hungry, you feed the dog some meat, the dog's appetite is aroused, the um, food drops out the side of the dog's neck, it never goes down the digestive tract, and voila, you get drippings of gastric fluid from the fistula. So that's how Pavlov proved that the psyche, the expectation of food, um, was the primary first stimulus for digestion. Okay. Now, was this uh, controversial? It was not very controversial, if you mean from an animal rights point of view. Um, in Russia, that is. Russia had a pretty weak, very weak animal rights movement. When it was most controversial in um, Great Britain, where they had a strong animal rights movement. And although Pavlov always claimed that these operations were painless for his dog and they lived long, happy lives. And indeed, they lived for years in the um, um, laboratory. Um, the anti-vivisectionists were certainly right that um, the dogs had all sorts of health problems. And uh, between you and me, I don't think they were really normal and um, happy. This is Science for the People, and we'll be right back with more of Daniel P. Totus, author of Ivan Pavlov, A Russian Life in Science, after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm talking to Daniel P. Totus, Professor of History of Medicine at the St. Johns Hopkins University, and we are discussing this fantastic book, Ivan Pavlov, A Russian Life in Science. Okay, so maybe before we go any farther, can you explain the concept of conditional reflexes? The words conditional and unconditional for Pavlov mean exactly what they say. An unconditional reflex is a reflex that for Pavlov works the same way every time regardless 
of conditions. If you put food in a dog, a hungry dog's mouth, it will salivate regardless almost of all the other conditions. If you put acid in the dog's mouth, it will salivate to protect its mouth against the acid. So for Pavlov, these were fundamental, unvarying physiological reactions. A conditional reaction depends on the conditions, and it's basically a signal for um, an unconditional stimulus. If I've got a hungry dog in the lab and I start a metronome beating, it's not going to cause the dog to salivate because it's not a signal for anything. If I set the metronome beating, say, for a minute and then feed the dog and then I do it again and then feed the dog, at a certain point, the dog is going to start salivating to the sound of the metronome because the metronome has become a signal for the food. If I then set the metronome beating and don't feed the dog, do it again and don't feed the dog, after a while, the dog is going to stop salivating to the metronome because the conditions have changed and the significance of the signal has changed. So that's basically what a conditional and unconditional reflex is to Pavlov. Now, why was that so interesting to him. The dominant school in psychology at the time was associationism, the idea that we develop our perceptions of our surroundings and our emotions by associating different primary stimuli. For Pavlov, the conditional reflex was the physiological substrate, the physiological counterpart of those associations. And so these experiments are interesting because they both reflect what we think of as psychological qualities. In the first case with the metronome, the dog's expecting to be fed, and so it salivates. And then when the metronome has been set forth several times with no feeding, the dog stops salivating because it's disappointed, okay? These are emotions or states of mind. But in the conditional reflex experiments, Pavlov has been able to establish a law. He calls this the law of extinction, you know, that you can get rid of that conditional response after several repetitions. So it's both reflecting a psychological process that we can all recognize, and it's showing the deterministic qualities that for Pavlov were basic to physiology as a science. I just discussed for you the conditional reflex as a phenomenon, but the main thing for Pavlov is that the conditional reflex was a method, and this is what's wrong with the whole view of him training a dog to salivate to the sound of a bell, right? People had noticed before, long before Pavlov, in the laboratory and out, that if the person that usually fed a dog came into the room, the dog, the dog would salivate. And Pavlov knew that, and he never claimed any credit for that as a discovery. Plus, why would he spend 30 years trying to train a dog to salivate the sound of a bell when you and I could do that in, in a couple of days? So this iconic notion that he trained the dog to salivate to the bell is taking as sort of its end point that this is supposedly his achievement what was actually for him the point of departure.
Because the conditional reflex for Pavlov, above all, it's a method. It's a methodology for understanding how dogs form and people form associations. And so how to get inside the dog's head, basically, and understand how it learned things, how it reacted to things. So I could describe for you, if you want, the three basic steps that he used this as a method to try to understand, as he put it, our consciousness and its torments. Please do. Okay. So I gave you the example of the conditional reflex with, with the metronome. He does tens of thousands of experiments like that, varying the conditions. You know, what happens if you... If you set the metronome up as a conditional stimulus after it's been paired with food and say a buzzer as a conditional inhibitor because the buzzer has been repeatedly sounded with no food and now you present the dog with both the metronome and the buzzer. How does the dog react? How does the dog react if you change the time intervals between the stimulus and the um, the um, feeding or lack of feeding. So he does, he does tens of thousands of trials with all sorts of different stimuli in all sorts of different combinations and generates this data in the form of saliva drops, which he counts. And remember, he's the kind of determinist that he thinks every drop counts, okay? So if one dog, one moment, secretes six drops of saliva and in the next trial secretes four, well, something has to account for that. Okay, so you do all these different trials and you try to look for patterns in the salivation. The second thing he does, once he's got those patterns, is he tries to imagine the unseen processes in the brain that could explain those patterns. And here, again, he draws on metaphors. He imagines waves of excitation and inhibition for him, the two basic nervous processes clashing in the dog. Irradiation, concentration, disinhibition. He develops these, what he sees is these basic brain processes to explain the patterns of salivation that he's developed. That's the second step. And then the third is he tries to map the dog's salivary patterns as interpreted through these um, laws he's developed about the brain operation to the dog's personality and emotion. So what he's really trying to do is bring together, you know, as, as one observer put it, to use saliva drops, drops and logic to connect the behavior and affect and personality of the dogs. And they're always, these dogs live for years in Pavlov's life, in Pavlov's lab. All the coworkers are familiar with their personalities and their behaviors to connect that to these patterns of salivation. And so to connect or fuse physiology with psychology. Um, let me give you one brief example of sort of how clever this methodology is. Um, do you have a pet? Yes. You have a dog or a cat? I don't have either. Okay. All right. Well, okay. Let's say you have you have a, a right. dog or a cat or a I'm rabbit. I'm a cat person, if that helps. All right, a cat. Okay, so you've got a cat in the room, and you're wondering how sensitive your cat is to the passage of time. Now, that's a tough one to answer, to get into a cat's head that way. But Pavlov could do it. 
And the way he did it was by using conditional reflexes as a methodology. So what do you do? You set the metronome beating in front of your hungry cat for, say, 60 beats a minute, and you feed it. You do it until the cat salivates to 60 beats a minute. Now you slow the metronome down to 20 beats a minute. Now, and you don't feed the cat. Now, the first couple of times, the cat's going to salivate to the sound of the metronome. But eventually, most cats will stop salivating to 20 beats a minute. So 60 beats a minute now, it'll salivate. 20 beats, it won't. So you know now that your cat can tell the difference between those two time intervals. So now you begin to raise the floor. How about if you have 30 beats a minute and don't feed the cat? Does it still not salivate at 30 and it does salivate at 60? Then how about 40, 45, 55? So he used that kind of method to determine how sensitive the dog was to the passage of time, how sensitively it could see the difference in colors, to how sensitive its skin was, if you were to prick the skin in one place and then in another and make one a conditional stimulus and the other a conditional inhibitor. So on this admittedly simple example, you've gotten inside your cat's head, your cat's psyche, and understood something about it by using conditional reflexes as a methodology. But this is where it actually just starts to get interesting because as always, in my experience in experimental science, things never work out quite as crisply as one might think. It turns out, for instance, that two different dogs res would respond differently to these experiments too. Like one dog, you would require 10 trials for it to start salivating to the beat of the metronome. Another dog would do it after only four. Why is that? And similarly, some dogs could differentiate between 60 beats a minute and 40, and others couldn't. Why is that? So here, just as Pavlov introduced the variable of the psyche in his digestive research, he has to introduce the variable of, we would say, personality, what he would say is nervous types. But of course, dogs don't respond the same way to the same experiment, just as people don't respond the same way to the same experience because they have different nervous constitutions. So now he begins to develop a theory of the different nervous types of dogs, nervous types of people. He finds one day, so in Leningrad in 1924, by this time, he has these dogs that lived for years. They keep their lab notebooks organized by dog for year. The dogs all have names that reflect their personality, like Malord is imperious, and Pastrel, which means very quick, is very excitable. And by now, by 1924, Pavel's been working on this for about 20 years. One of the first things they do in the lab is they establish the dog's personality type. So in September 1924, there's a big flood in Leningrad, and um, Pavlov's dogs are outside of the lab in their kennels when the co-workers realize that the flood is going to drown them. So they all rush out to the cage, and by this time, the floodwaters are rising. Um, the dogs are swimming frantically, sticking their nose up toward the top of the cage against the rising um, floodwaters. And in order to save the dogs, the co-workers have to swim already underwater 
through the submerged door of um, the cage, come up, grab the dog, which is struggling atop of the water, force it down under the water, so the dogs must have thought they were being drowned, take them out on the door of the cage, and off to safety. So they actually saved all the dogs, but they noticed afterwards that some of the dogs were behaving rather strangely. And Pavlov tried to correlate the kind of what he decided was mental illness or mental break that some of the dogs had suffered with their nervous type before the flood. So this gets him um, very deeply into the study of, um, of psychiatry. So the conditional reflexes methodology um, goes out in all directions for Pavlov. Um, and it also connects, um, I mentioned his patriotism earlier. He was very proud of Russian accomplishments in um, culture. He identified with the power of the Russian state. He was happy when they did anything well. But he always had this sneaking suspicion that there was a problem with what he called the Russian type, that the Russians had a poor balance between these two nervous processes, excitation and inhibition. In order to understand reality properly, according to Pavlov's model of the nervous system, those processes, inhibition and excitation, have to be balanced. And that's why he thought, for instance, the English excelled at sciences. They had a superbly balanced nervous system. But the Russians, alas, he thought, um, had a deficit in inhibition. And so they were often unrealistic. And that, in fact, was, was part of his explanation for the craziness of having a revolution during World War I and then the Bolshevik seizure of power. So he was interested also in studying nervous types in, in the hope that perhaps someday science would be able to, to help with this problem. This is Science for the People, and we'll be right back with more of Daniel P. Totus after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. Let's talk about the Bolsheviks for a second, because we haven't uh -huh. really spoken about how the the inter let's say the interaction between uh, yeah. the politics and the science around Pavlov, uh, because you have Pavlov who, uh, after the Bolsheviks take over, uh, he is openly, scathingly Absolutely. critical of the government. Absolutely, but they treat him with with kid gloves. Yes, so they do. Can you explain why that is? Sure. Well, it's a very interesting negotiating and negotiation and game that's going on between the two of them. Um, so let, let me start by saying something about the, the sort of worldview and strategies of each. I mean, what were Pavlov's politics? I would say that they were com it combined really three basic things. The most important part of his politics was what we would call scientism, was the belief that science was the motive force for human progress, that it would civilize human beings, 
um, and ultimately rationalize us and improve our society. And at one time, Pavlov said that it didn't even matter that much what kind of society it was. The main thing was, did it support science or not? And if it supported science, in the end, the, the, that would be all to the good. So that was the main thing he was interested in, was the development of science. Secondly, as I mentioned, he was a patriot. He identified with the power of and respect of the Russian state. And thirdly, he was a gradualist, and um, he had no faith in the wisdom of the masses. Again, he thought it was the intellectuals and science that were the main forces for progress. Um, so before the revolution, Pavlov was basically hoping that Russia would evolve toward a constitutional monarchy. When the chips were down, like during World War I, his patriotism would come to the fore and he wouldn't criticize the government. But he wasn't very happy with the czars, um, particularly because they didn't support science very much. Um, when the Bolsheviks seized power in October 1917, Pavlov thought it was a tragedy, that it was, it was the end of Russia. And um, he seriously considered emigration. He referred to them routinely as barbarians. And he gave public speeches attacking the Bolsheviks and their policies towards science and society. He also didn't like it that the Bolsheviks um, um, surrendered large parts of the Tsarist Empire, which he thought diminished Russia's um, stature as a state. Um, and, of course, the Bolsheviks didn't like that. Um, but on the other hand, the Bolsheviks, uh, Lenin was very clear on this, their idea of building state power and particularly socialism um, required what they called the raising of the productive forces. They needed science and technology in order to do that. So they were after... Um, by 1921, when it became clear the Bolsheviks were going to win the, the Civil War, Lenin was turning his attention to um, building his new, his new society, and he was very concerned that the scientists not leave. And Pavlov was their most prestigious scientist. He had won the Nobel Prize. He was well-known around the world. Um, he had great symbolic value for Russia's scientific community. And the Bolsheviks felt, Lenin felt, that even though by this time Pavlov was cursing them right and left in public, um, he was a materialist. He was developing good science, so objectively he was working for them. So the game begins. Pavlov considered going abroad. By this time, though, he was 68, 70 years old. He didn't want to leave Russia. And his colleagues in the West, while they respected him a great deal and got food and money to him during the hungry years of the Civil War, they thought he was a washed-up old man, and the best they offered him was a sort of quiet retirement home somewhere. But Pavlov didn't look at himself that way, and he was all afire with this work on conditional reflexes. So he, he thought that if he stayed in Russia, first of all, he realized that he had the protection of being a Nobel Prize winner, um, that he might be able to, he would better be able to pursue his science there, and he might be able to help Russia in the plight of Russian scientists. And um, Lenin and the Bolsheviks felt conversely that this guy is a political reactionary. He's certainly not ours. 
Um, but as Bukharin put it, he doesn't sing the international, but objectively, he's working for us. And so this constant sort of quiet negotiation, Pavlov made clear that if he stayed, he considered it a matter of personal dignity, that he would speak what he saw of the truth. And he, he criticized the Bolsheviks not only in the 20s, but openly in Stalin times where, needless to say, there were very few voices of uh, public dissent. I don't know of another one other than Pavlov. Um, and the Bolsheviks, from their point of view, were putting up with it because they felt they had the propaganda value of the Nobel Prize winner flourishing in revolutionary Russia. He was training a new generation of Russian scientists. And they felt he was doing good science. Now, paradoxically, Pavlov's 100% anti-Bolshevik feelings began changing in the Stalin years, which is just the opposite of, of what at least I would have expected. Um, um, when he came back from France, because under the Bolsheviks, basically, Russian science flourished in terms of numbers of institutions, numbers of, of scientists, and Pavlov saw that, and as he put it, when he came back from France in 1926 and saw the poor conditions his French colleagues were working under, compared by that time, he had three large labs and a science village going up in the countryside, and he turned to one of his co-workers and he said, you have to give our barbarians one thing. They understand the value of science. And given Pavlov's worldview, he thought that inevitably the development of science in Russia would civilize even these communist barbarians. And so in the very contradictory period of the early period after the great break in Russia, you know, Stalin acquires supreme power by 1929, um, the, the Stalin cult, the dictatorship, and then he launches this first five-year plan for rapid industrialization and collectivization, and they begin um, also forcing scientists to pay obeisance to the um, official um, philosophy of dialectical materialism, and Pavlov didn't like all of that, needless to say. But then, in 1933, Hitler comes to power, and Pavlov, who by this time is very, um, has an ongoing relation with Bukharin, who although he's lost political power in the struggle to Stalin, is still pretty high up in party circles. Uh, Pavlov shares with Bukharin this view that Nazi Germany is a mortal threat to the Soviet Union. And he, he, he stops criticizing um, um, the communists in public, not in private, but, but in public. Then there's this very contradictory period after the first five-year plan between 1934 and 1936, where on the one hand, there are these really terrible things happening. There's the beginning of the so-called quiet terror. People are being arrested in the cities, particularly the so-called former people, the former aristocrats, the former members of other political parties. People from religious families are being arrested. And Pavlov sees that and he hates it. And he writes letters to Molotov and Stalin denouncing the terror, the dogmatism, the suppression of religion. But the other thing that's happening in those years is the second five-year plan is a lot more moderate than the first, 
and there's more food in the stores. Um, Stalin makes, we now know, a cynical gesture toward democratizing the regime. He sponsors a discussion of a new Stalinist constitution that's going to guarantee not only the basic socialist rights of, of a job and health care, but the right of free elections and freedom of assembly. Um, Molotov writes to uh, Pavlov in response to one of Pavlov's letters that they're going to lift the prohibition on children of the clergy going to school. So in this atmosphere, even a lot of pretty sophisticated political people thought that in the face of the Nazi threat, Stalin was going to move toward a more moderate, popular front kind of regime. And Pavlov thought so too. And he thought one of the big reasons was that the scientific mentality was permeating Russian culture. And so in his last years, although he never surrendered his criticisms of Bolshevism and Stalinism, he was increasingly hopeful and began to say positive things about um, um, the, the, the Bolshevik regime. And in fact, in this I mentioned to you that the two manuscripts he was working on when he died, one of them that he was writing to Molotov, an essay trying to convince him to cease the suppression of religion. Pavlov said that if you were to cease suppressing religion, you would find a lot of supporters in the church because there is a common core between Christianity and communism, and that is the belief in equality and the right of every person to dignity and respect because of of their labor. And so he he was hoping that things were moving in that direction. And in fact, he started teasing the communists in his lab. Um, um, when Christmas was coming up, he turned to them and he said, why are you suppressing Christmas? He said, you don't have to celebrate Easter, he said, because Jesus was a man, he was not the son of God, um, so he couldn't have been resurrected. But you should be celebrating Christmas because it's the birth of Jesus, and Jesus was the first communist on earth. <laughs> now, of course, it, a few months after he died, the great terror, um, um, but, but it's, it's to me an emotional, piquant moment. So did the Bolsheviks try to influence Pavlov's research? The Bolsheviks on the higher levels, like Lenin and Buharna, they were just interested in his, you know, they wanted him to quiet down on the criticism. They were just dealing with him as a political animal. And they had their ideological views, but they weren't familiar with the esoteric questions of, of conditional reflex research. But one of the things I found and I found most fascinating is that because Pavlov's research was seen as so important and science in general, many in the 1920s, the Communist Party did a great job of educating and producing many young scientists. And a lot of them came from working class families, peasant families. They never would have had a shot at an education under czarism. Um, many of them women also. And um, many of them fought for the Bolsheviks during the Civil War. They came back. They finished their education. And a goodly number of them found their way to Pavlov's lab. By the late 1920s, there were at least nine or ten communists working in Pavlov's lab. And Pavlov would argue with them 
about their politics, but he judged everybody as a scientific worker based on their scientific work. And these communists were almost, all of them, um, very dedicated to their science, very well disciplined by their way, not, by the way, not like this lamentable Russian type, so-called, that Pavlov had always worried about. And um, they, over the years, many of them were what Pavlov called thinking individuals who weren't just running experiments, but were producing ideas. And um, um, a number of them, motivated by their dialectical materialist views, um, developed lines of investigation. They knew arguing with Pavlov about philosophy would get them nowhere. Um, but they developed lines of investigation that were strategically chosen to change Pavlov's um, views from what they considered his mechanical materialist views to more dialectical materialist views. And in that, they enjoyed some success. It turns out, for instance, that um, um, Pavlov had all often had in the past been given credit for deciding to work on chimps. Um, but it turns out, I found in the archives, that that idea did not come from Pavlov. He was happy working on dogs, didn't want to work on another organism. And from his philosophical point of view, dogs were better to work on than chimps because dogs were simpler. You could put them in a stand and use a salivary fistula. And like many scientists or historians, we get used to working with certain materials in certain ways and comfortable with it. So why change? But Pavlov's communist co-workers wanted to get him working on chimps because from their, their dialectical materialist point of view, there were important differences. Pavlov was right that the same basic nervous processes could account for the psyche of a dog and a chimp and a human, but that there were qualitative differences between chimp consciousness, human consciousness, and dog consciousness. So they wanted to get Pavlov working with chimps so he would see that there was a difference between the way higher primates learned and experience their environment and the dogs in the stand. So one fine day, one of his co-workers, Denisov, brought to cultish Pavlov Science City two chimps, Rosa and Raphael. And um, Pavlov became fascinated by them. And in fact, working with those chimps did change his mind at the end of his life, um, where he came to see some basic differences between the ways um, uh, the dog's nervous system and psyche and the chimp's psyche and the human psyche um, operate. And that's what he was writing. That second unfinished manuscript he was working on when he died about was basically trying to explain um, um, those, those differences and devise um, uh, a somewhat different scientific methodology for dealing with them. So he had a very active relationship with the communists in his lab, intellectually as well as politically. Okay, so let's look back uh, for a moment. How, how does his research fare? Where, where was he wrong and where was he right, I guess is what I want to know. On a basic level, okay, if you're asking what did he bequeath to, to science, certainly this notion that our bodies react to signals, um, in this case the conditional reflex, there's no question that that's, that's a very um, profound and helpful comment. 
I mean, insight. Um, nowadays, people, scientists and clinicians use conditional reflex methodology to try to, to analyze simple learning behaviors, to um, deal sometimes with drug addiction or depression. Um, um, in the larger sense, you know, what, what I call Pavlov's quest in the book, this quest to understand the psyche based on physiological processes, to understand consciousness, to understand our emotions and our thoughts based on nerves or reflexes. Well, Pavlov's attempt to do that, um, he was never able to, to solve that problem, to make that connection. Um, uh, uh, and and he worried about that in in private. The data never clearly mapped. The data from the salivary experiments never cleanly mapped onto the personalities and affect and behavior of his dogs. But he kept thinking, as many scientists do, and it makes good sense, that basically he was on the right path. That he just hadn't discovered the right variable yet. That he when he discovered the next variable, whether it was the result of heredity or or broader like social influences that everything would click into place and it never did for him and he realized that and he also realized that there was a philosophical problem which he didn't in public he was very confident all the time but one thing I liked I liked the private Pavlov who was very thoughtful and full of doubts and he writes in one of his lab notebooks at the same time as he's giving these confident speeches that he's on the path to the only true scientific psychology. He writes in this notebook, he says, we believe that physiological processes cause psychological phenomena. But how can one use a process that occurs in time and space, that is physiological processes, to explain something that occurs beyond space, the subjective, right, the, the psychological. Um, and Pavlov, he was a scientist of his generation. He was, in this sense, a positivist. He always believed that the answer wouldn't come from a philosophical breakthrough. It would come from accumulating more data. And one day, he said, a wonderful day would come when everything would click into place. But in my, from my point of view, the more experiments they ran and the more data they collected, the more complicated things became and the less possible to constrain the data within these laws. Now, back to your original question. See, I would say that view that psychology, can, that our consciousness and its torments can be explained by physiological and nervous processes is still um, very controversial. I mean, many neuroscientists think consciousness, like Dennett writes, has been explained or that it's just a matter of finding, you know, the next processes and interconnections of the nervous system. But that, that hard question of consciousness, the relationship between bodily physiological processes and those subjective qualities that we all experience, that hard question of consciousness still remains. And in that sense, you know, we have much fancier technology 
and we can look at an fMRI and we can see in a way Pavlov never could you know the oxygenation of the neurons as a person ex experiences love or fear or as a monkey is about to reach for a banana but what's the relationship of that thing we see to consciousness and its qualities I'm not sure we're any closer to understanding that than Pavlov was. So what do you think that, that Pavlov would say about contemporary government influence on science? Here or there? Here. Um, <laughs> Let's go here. In North America. Well, okay, this is, this is the sort of thing I'm not supposed to speculate about as a historian, but I'll do it. For one thing... Pavlov would like it that there's so much science being done, but Pavlov uh, was always profoundly opposed to any interconnections between money and science. He thought money corrupted science. The, the idea that scientific research would be determined according to you know, a pharmaceutical company giving money for this or that. Uh, I'll tell you an anecdote. This is kind of interesting. This is a window into, into, into that view of his. When he won the Nobel Prize, he had first promised his wife that he was going to divide the money up between all of them and they could do whatever they wanted. So his wife, Serafina, talked to one of Pavlov's old friends from his hometown, Rizan. And this friend was working in a government ministry and basically was making a fortune by what we would call insider trading, right? So he offered Pavlov's wife, he said, look, give me your share and I will double it within a week, quadruple it within two. You'll be independently wealthy, you know, after a month or two. And when Pavlov heard about that, he was appalled, not because of the insider trading, but he said, this money came to us through scientific work, and it has nothing to do with commerce, that those two worlds are just uh, mutually exclusive. So I think he would worry about the degree to which money is determining what gets worked on in science and what isn't worked on. Um, um, on the other hand, you know, Pavlov visited um, the United States twice, 1923 and 1929, and was very impressed by what he saw, especially by the scientific institutions and by what he perceived as the, the important part that science at the time was, was playing in American um, culture. So again, I think he would have thought that in the end, if science develops, then society and humanity and morality will develop in its train. But of course, we've seen so many things in the 20th century, in the 21st century, since Pavlov's death, that make it difficult or impossible to believe that the development of science in itself is going to improve human morality, human nature, and the way we treat one another. And Pavlov was anything but a stupid man, and I think he would have taken that into account. And in his own country, of course, with the development of um, the great development of science and um, what happened with late Stalinism, um, I think uh, he would have rethought some things. And that was one thing I should have said about Powell. One of the things that I admire most about him, which most surprised me because it didn't fit the public image, the man who was always sure 
is that he was a very reflective man and he had his worldview and his worldview never changed but 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 he was willing to change his mind and he was changing his mind at the end of his life about a number of important things um including i mean an 86 year old nobel prize winner who could have just bowled his way through in that last manuscript saying much of what I said in the previous 30 years was one-sided. I mean, I, I admire that. Um, so in that sense, I, I, I can't predict what he would say about our world today, the place of science in it. Daniel, wonderful to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed talking to you. And that was Daniel P. Taudis, author of Ivan Pavlov, A Russian Life in Science, which we've linked to on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. That's also where you'll find all of our old episodes, or if you'd like the new ones delivered automatically, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And of course, as always, if you'd like to follow show news or comment on an episode, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Google+. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.